Good morning. Okay, so we're going to start a study in Jonah. should take us a couple of months. I uh, tried my best to avoid having to teach at this time because it is the busiest time of the year for our business. But in our elder meeting, Don put his foot down and insisted that I will teach. <laughs> so here I am, uh, ready or not. <laughs> No, that's fine. Let's pray, and then we're going to take this hour to look at some background information on Jonah. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with thanksgiving, that though we uh, deal with our flesh, by faith we are found in Christ. We have you. And so we can enter into a time like this to look at your word with all the confidence in the world that you don't hide, that you show yourself. And so it's with anticipation that we uh, want to ask for your wisdom to allow you to work in our hearts, Lord, both as the one that's teaching and those who are listening, to do what only you're capable of doing. And we thank you that we can ask such a thing. Thank you for not being silent. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now, this is, like I said, it's going to be background information. But there's a lot of it, and there's a lot of scripture we're going to look at. So, I know this is a big ask from you as a group, but I'm going to ask that you contain your comments until the end of class. I'm trying to get there quick enough to where there's time for everybody to say something. So, if there's something you want to say in the course of it, make a note, and then at the end, I'll let you go, okay? Uh, provided I do end when I think I will end, all right? Oh, <laughs> you, know, you know, Kevin, I was thinking I'm going to uh, milk as much time until you come in, and then I was going to say this. No, all right. No, I always, Kevin, I always appreciate your comments. All right. So, Jonah, interesting character. I um, was talking with somebody the other day, and we had an interesting conversation about Jonah. Uh, she said that she doesn't think she, it wasn't until recently that she realized that Jonah's not that great of a guy. Uh, she said that she uh, had never read the whole book of Jonah. And she said, I don't know why I never did, but she was in one of our torchbearer schools and, uh, one of the, and had an assignment to do a report on three or four different books. And so she picked Jonah because it was only four chapters. <laughs> And uh, she got to the fourth chapter, and she thought, oh, my goodness. You know, it's, we, in looking at Jonah, uh, something in, in the study of Jonah for myself that I came to is that, you know, I think, and I think we do this with some other books in the Bible, too, if not most of them, is that we make too much out of the, the, the person the book is named after, and we really miss what the book is about. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. But first of all, we see just some background on Jonah himself. He was used of God before this account that we find in the book that bears his name. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we read this. He, and he is Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. 
So he was a known prophet. He had been active in ministry uh, before this account. Some historical context, uh, which is interesting. And reading the, the prophets Amos and Hosea together, we kind of we're given some insight as to why it's possibly why Jonah was so obstinate as far as not wanting to go to Nineveh. Uh, and there's a couple of passages in here, and you have to see them together. Amos 5.27 says, Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And you put that together with Hosea 1, uh, or 11.5, They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. And so, uh, in the future, from this uh from this verse being written, um, Nineveh becomes the capital of Assyria. So it's possible that what's going on here is knowing what these prophets have said, that Jonah really does not want to go to Nineveh to, to speak God's word to them. Because this, these are the people that will someday bring destruction on his own country. Uh, when I was looking at this, I just had this thought, it made me remember uh, Acts 21, where Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, and the, the, the prophet comes to him, and then he was told this, Paul says he was told this many times before this even, uh, that going back to Jerusalem would mean his arrest, and you know, the church was begging him not to do it, and he, just, you know, he got on to him for that. He says, listen, <laughs> this is what the Lord has. You know, it's, you know, it's irrelevant as far as Paul is concerned as to what is going to happen to him. Uh, what is important is that the Lord would have him go back. And then we know that the records indicate uh, before, historical records indicate for us, before Jonah uh, goes to Nineveh, which we're guessing is about 759 uh, B.C., that just, just prior to this, just a few years prior to this, there were two plagues that had run through the city, and there was also a complete um, eclipse of the sun. And it's been pointed out that at that time, this would, it would have been co a common thought that this these, these events would have been considered signs of divine anger. And so maybe that would help us understand a little bit as to why they are so receptive to the message that Jonah brings. But also just wondering, and you know, you've probably heard some people speculate on this as well, you know, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, he has just spent three days and nights in the belly of this great fish. And you can only imagine what his physical appearance would be like. And, uh, and also, when something like that happens, it's not something that people usually keep quiet, you know. Uh, they're going to talk about this, so it's no telling how fast news of this spread. This is a big deal. By the time he shows up in Nineveh, you know, just people knowing what has happened to him uh, is, is kind of captivating and looking at this man. And then hearing the message he has to give possibly would also be a reason uh, why the, the Ninevites are so receptive to this message. Now, Nineveh itself um, is east of the Tigris River. It's about 550 miles uh, northeast of Samaria, which means that it would take, uh, if you were to walk, the, you know, the average walking distance for the traveling in that time be, would be between 15 to 20 
miles a day, it would take over a month to, to go from Samaria to Nineveh. Uh, it is in, uh, the city itself is second in size to Babylon, and it was found in what today is Iraq, across from the city of uh, Mosul. And Nineveh was built by Nimrod uh, that we find in Genesis chapter 10, verse 11. And also, uh, after, after Jonah's day, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Nineveh, the city, becomes the capital of Assyria under Sennacherib. Now, some of the topics that are covered, and this is what I was talking about, where we I think so often can miss what this book is about because we pay so much attention to Jonah. And, you know, there's things, definitely things to learn from Jonah, uh, but they're not necessarily all great things. Uh, I can identify with Jonah. I can easily identify with Jonah. Jonah's a stinker, and, and it doesn't change. I mean, the book ends very frustrating. And as far as from Jonah's perspective, and I, I can identify with that. Um, there are certain topics within Christendom that are considered hot topics. And this particular one is one that I have avoided like the plague. I can't now because it's just so obviously laid out in this book. Uh, there's two camps on this thinking, and they're very adamant camps. I mean, they are convinced and if you don't agree with them, basically you're an idiot. And I have managed to have both camps uh, get mad at me. Uh, I, I, have, I have had people in class lose their, lose their cool and let me have it. Uh, I've had people take me out for lunch, uh, thinking that this is going to be a nice, wonderful time of fellowship. And uh, they instead have asked me to go out so that they can correct my thinking and tell me how they fight the urge to stand up in class and point at me and yell, you lie, you lie, you lie. That was a very interesting lunch. Yeah, but you're giving the grade. Don't comment now, okay? <laughs> and, I, I love Jim. It's such a punching bag. <laughs> so what is the topic? Well, here we go. Topics that are covered. The first one is this, God's sovereignty. And I see in this book God's sovereignty over man's free will. And this is an interesting position to be in. Um, like I said, I've made both sides mad at me. Uh, sometimes people losing it in the middle of a session. Uh, on both sides. It's really interesting where I have sat down with people on both sides of this, you know, God's sovereignty, man's free will, and we go in a, in a, a conversation that just goes in a circle. And what I think is hilarious is that I've had this circle conversation with both camps. Um, it's, that's interesting to me. Um, I have a very good friend who uh, considers uh, himself in one of these camps, and he and I have sat down. We've had a wonderful discussion about it. And we've actually gone through this. We've gone through point by point what we believe. And as we go through each point, we say this, okay, I agree. And we go to the next point and we say, yeah, I agree. And we get through absolutely every point. And then I made the comment, therefore, I cannot accept 
this teaching. And he said, therefore, I do accept this teaching. And so, you know, it's just, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, there's just some things that we, it, it, we have to agree to disagree on. Uh, so, having said that, and again, I can tell you that he's a dear friend, and we have very deep uh, understanding and, and, and uh, appreciation for each other. And I can tell you this too. What, what I am so encouraged about with him is that when you hear him speak, he is extremely clear and zeroed in on the person of Christ. And I think that's what matters. Uh, so anyway, here's how I have seen it. Um, in, in, our, in the book of Jonah, there's a few phrases that jump out to me that it's obvious. You cannot argue this, that God is sovereign. And where are these? Okay, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This was not Jonah's idea. This is the word of the Lord. In verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind. In verse 7, the, uh, the lot fell on Jonah. So they're trying to figure out, you know, why, why is this storm, what's going on? Why are we in the middle of this? And the Lord makes sure they know why. In verse 9, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In verse 14, you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. In verse 15, the sea stopped its raging. And that's when they, uh, they, they turn to God. God stops the sea, from the, uh, stops the storm. In verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. So this is what the Lord has done. In chapter 2, verse 2, in, his, in Jonah's prayer, you heard my voice. In verse 3, for you had cast me into the deep. Again in verse 3, your breakers and billows passed over me. In chapter 2 and verse 6, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. In verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. In verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish. In chapter 3, verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So here, the, uh, the Ninevites, they understand this, that this is, this, is God's, this is up to God, only he can do this. Verse 10, when God saw, a little later, then God relented. In chapter 4 and verse 6, so the Lord God appointed a plant. In verse 7, but God appointed a worm. In verse 8, God appointed a, a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. In verse 9, then God said to Jonah. And then in verses 10 and 11, in verse uh, 10, then the Lord said, in verse 11, should I not have compassion? So it's, I mean, it, just reading those passages and going through uh, the study of this book, you cannot escape, nor should you want to escape, the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control. But also in this, I see man's free will. Much of these examples that I will point out are simply a response to God's sovereignty which is displayed 
I believe, as a cohabitation of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Therefore, it demonstrates that God's sovereignty does not negate man's free will, nor does man's free will usurp God's authority. I think it was Geisler that once said, he wrote a book on all of this called Chosen But Free, and I think he said in the beginning of the book, okay, before we get into this, I want you to understand something. You're not going to get it. And then he went on and wrote 300 pages. To tell you the truth, it's kind of exciting to think that we can't get it. Because if we could, we'd, be, we'd have God's mind. Not the mind of God as he gives, but we would, have, we would be God. And I, I praise him. He is much more than I can imagine or think. So anyway, with that, how do we see man's free will? Well, in chapter 1 and verse 3, now God has already said, go to Nineveh, but in verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. In verse 5, but Jonah had uh, gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, fallen asleep. And then in verse 12, I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. In chapter 2 and verse 2, I called out. I cried for help. In verse 4, so I said, nevertheless, I will look. In verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. In verse 3 of chapter 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And then in verses 5 to 8, we see the Ninevites' response to the message that God has to, to give them through Jonah. And then in verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way. In looking at this verse, in verse 10, uh, I think the wording is really interesting. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. I think this is interesting. If it is God's sole act in this verse to see and to relent, then it seems to reason that it is man's sole act in his deeds and his act of turning. If not, this verse would not make sense in that it would contradict itself. But, uh, see, chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, was not this what I said in order to forestall that I fled, for I knew? In verse 5, he made a shelter for himself. In verse 8, he begged with all his soul to die. And then in verse 10, you had, God speaking about Jonah, you had compassion on the plant. So what am I getting at with all of this? I, Come up with this chart, an overview regarding God's sovereignty over Jonah's free will. 
Looking at the four chapters, we see in chapter 1, God's sovereign initiative. In chapter 2, Jonah's free will response. Then in chapter 3, God's sovereign initiative. Followed by chapter 4, Jonah's free will response. And look how the, the beginning of each chapter is found. Verse 1, the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the response, then Jonah. Chapter 3, the initiative of God. Verse 1, the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, this displeased Jonah, the response. But look at what happens in each chapter. Look at what we're shown. God's sovereignty is shown in each chapter, regardless of man's free will. And then how each chapter ends. Verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 10, then God. And chapters uh, verses 10 through 11 in chapter 4, again, the Lord. What's my point? What am I getting at? The execution of Jonah's free will does not usurp God's sovereignty. Uh, this, is, uh, this is incredible to me. You see, again, in this book, like we find in any book of the Bible, is this. It's a simple thought. I came up with it, so it has to be a simple thought. It's all about him. It's not about me. He simply allows me to live in who it's all about. So this, we see, is one of the topics that's covered. God's sovereignty over man's free will. Another topic that I see is God's concern for the Gentiles. A reason for us to rejoice. We see this, first of all, as we look at the history of the nation of Israel. Beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where Abram, the father of the Jewish nation, is addressed by God with this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." And then, as you go on and study the history of the nation of Israel from this point, in all these passages, which we don't have time to read, we find this theme continues to be carried out in that there is a blessing for the world that God uses the nation of Israel for. And we know that ultimately this blessing is realized in Christ. There are a um, couple of passages that come to mind. Well, one of them is from Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, talking about the divide that's between the Jew and the Gentile, we read this in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who into one 
and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Thank you, Lord. So what do we, so we see God's concern to, for the Gentiles, and this is a theme throughout Scripture. Now, in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2, we simply see it this way. God says, go to Nineveh and cry against it. There, Nineveh, Nineveh is a dark place. And God cries. He, he, he has something to say to them. We see something of the character of our God. We see his, we see his, his concern. And uh, that's, that's encouraging to think of. You know, when we, when we think through some of the things that, you know, we're dealing with now in the world, to know that God is concerned, that this is, his, this is who he is. Um, we see this in that he repeats this in chapter 3. He's resolute in his concern for Nineveh. Then uh, we look at uh, verses 14 to 15 in chapter 1. Then they called on the Lord. These sailors that are in, the, in this storm, they're, they're worshiping other gods. They come to this encounter, and they end up calling on the Lord, and they pick up Jonah, they throw him into the sea, and we see there at the end in verse 15, the sea stopped its raging. And there's a concern that the Lord has. You know, he doesn't have to stop. You know, why would he stop the storm? You know, he's after Jonah. But there's a concern that is shown from God toward these sailors. In chapter 3 and verse 10, when God saw their deeds, the Ninevites, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented. And then in chapter 4 and verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, Jonah says, and he's upset about it. <laughs> and then in verse 11 of chapter 4, should I not, God says, have compassion on Nineveh? So we've seen these topics, God's sovereignty over man's free will. We see God's concern for the Gentile. And then we want to look at God's graciousness, patience, compassion, and loving kindness. First, he shows this toward Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And you think, oh, wait a minute. Where, where is the graciousness, patience, compassion, or loving kindness in this? Well, I think about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11, where the writer of Hebrews tells us of God's care for his people, for his children, and his discipline of his children. And I, I think, uh, I'm, I, oh, okay, I'm going to be disciplined and not go off on that trail, so we'll keep going. Um, in chapter 2 and verse 2, and he answered me, you heard my voice. You know, this, you know, this man has gone, he has opposed God in going the opposite direction. And he's been pretty, pretty adamant about it. And then he cries out to God, and God hears him. His compassion, his patience, his, his graciousness, his loving kindness. And uh, then we go to chapter 2, verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. In chapter 3, verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He hasn't given up on him. He hasn't abandoned him. He still has use for him. 
In chapter 4, verse 6, So the Lord God appointed a plant to be a shade to deliver him from his discomfort. And then in verse 7, But God appointed a worm. It attacked the plant and it withered. Again, the discipline. God hasn't abandoned him, but he's showing himself to, to Jonah. In verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. So continued discipline, his graciousness, patience, his compassion, his loving kindness. Also, we see this directed toward the sailors. In chapter 1 and verse 7, the lot fell on Jonah. You know, they're, they're desperate. They want to know who's at fault. And so God makes sure they know. And then in verse 15 of chapter 1, the sea stopped its raging. And we see how that impacted the sailors, and we'll, we'll look at that together when we get there. And then finally, we see God's graciousness, His patience, His compassion and loving kindness toward Nineveh. And this is a dark, again, a dark place. Then Jonah, chapter 3, verse 4, began to go through the city, and he cried out. God's word is being heard by these people in their darkness, in their blackness. In verse 10 of chapter 3, then God relented concerning the calamity. In chapter 4 and verse 2, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And then verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? God's graciousness and His patience, His compassion, and His loving kindness toward mankind is shown in this book and throughout Scripture. I'm thinking of verses like this, Jeremiah 29, 11, which so often is taken out of context, but it does show the truth of how God deals with those that He cares for. When the nation of Israel is found in a very bad place because of their disobedience, the Lord says this, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. In Psalm 139, verses 16 and 17, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me. O oh God, how vast is the sum of them. And then Matthew 10, beginning in 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from, you, from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And this is a verse we don't look at much, is it? Because we, we've, we memorize it as children, and we don't spend much time there anymore. But for God so loved the world. Do a study someday on what the world is in Scripture. And then read this again. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 28 and 29, 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's his good. Not making things happy for us. Though that may happen, his good is conforming us to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn of many among many brethren. And Romans 8, 38, 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And finally, 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Thank you, Lord. These are incredible passages. How do they impact you? Years ago, when I was a counselor at His Hill, that was decades ago, many decades ago, I had a 12-year-old camper who came to us from an orphanage. And uh, he had never been around believers like this. He comes to me one night, and he says, Kelly, can we talk? We walked outside. And he said, Kelly, I'm hearing everybody talk about how God will forgive me. God will forgive me. God will forgive me of anything. I said, yeah, he does. And he looked at me and says, I don't know. This is pretty bad. And I thought, he's 12 years old. How bad can it be? So I just asked him, what have you done? I don't go around asking people that question, but I just felt like that was, that was what needed to be done at the time. What have you done? And he told me. It scared him to tell me. And his eyes got big as saucers, and he stared up at me, and, oh my goodness, and he went ahead and he told me, and I remember thinking, oh my goodness, that's a big one. <laughs> I didn't act like it, I just had that thought. But I remember the look on his face when I said, by faith in Christ, he forgives you. And I can remember, you know, that night he, he entrusted his life to Jesus. That at the end of the week when we say goodbye to the campers, I was running around trying to find him. And I couldn't find him. And I looked down at the, at the road by the chapel and he was already in the orphanage van about to leave. And as he's driving off, we saw each other. And I saw on this orphan's face going back into the orphanage the biggest smile from ear to ear because he was forgiven. God's compassion, his graciousness, his patience, his loving kindness impacted him, changed him. Just this last week and uh, on our podcast, I interviewed one of our students. And it's not giving anything away because we've just aired it to the whole world. But, you know, she was just explaining how, you know, coming from a broken home that 
her identity was taken from that. Though she was a believer, she began to identify with, I am from a broken home. And then later on in life, one of her siblings decided that he was a she and came out with that. And this was upsetting to her and her siblings and she said that she began to identify as a trans sister. This was who she was. She went to Bible school and started to realize, wait a minute, Jesus is alive and he lives in me. This is who I am. His graciousness, his compassion, his loving kindness, his patience changed her. Should it not change you? Should it not change me? And then finally, we see how Christ is shown in the book of Jonah. It's very clear to us in chapter 1, verses um, 17, all the way to the end of chapter 2, verse uh, 10. Three days and nights in the fish. Warren Wiersbe has a comment on this. He says that the sign of Jonah is seen in Christ's experience of death, burial, and resurrection on the third day. And it was the only sign Jesus gave to the nation of Israel. And it's recorded three times in the Gospels. I have the account in Matthew for us, chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. But he answered and he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the, of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at that judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The importance and the necessity of the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Christ is found throughout the teaching of the church. I was going to read some of this to us, but we just don't have time. But in Acts, I challenge you to find one sermon in Acts that does not reference both death and resurrection. They don't talk just about the death of Christ. But they even say this, they talk of the death and resurrection and then say, to this we are witnesses, that Jesus is alive. Uh, you can start in Acts 2, 22 to 27, and then just go from there. Every time they speak, they do this. In Romans chapter 6, you know, that's one of those chapters where maybe it's good we don't turn to it right now because of time, because I never know where to stop reading because of the importance of the death and the resurrection for the believer to know. And then we will look a little bit at 1 Corinthians 15 that speaks of how pathetic it is for us, how sorry we are if there is no resurrection. But uh, I'll read that in a second. Big things happen in the book of Jonah after this picture of death and resurrection. A whole city is changed, is brought out of this darkness, brought out of this death to live secure. 
after the picture of the death and resurrection. It's interesting how the narrative lays out like that. So it should be for you and for me, for any believer in Jesus Christ, the, the reality of death and resurrection of Christ. You see, in Genesis 2, verse 16, we see God's intent for us. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So death is a reality because of the disobedience, the turning away from God. But look how Scripture lays things out. In Hebrews 9.22, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there has to be death. But our death can't pay for it. And so what do we need? Hebrews 2.9, But we do see him, Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. See, death is is a necessity. Crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And the word taste does not mean that he sampled it. The word taste actually means he experienced it. He died. And so what's, what's our celebration with this? In Romans 5, 17, for if by the, tr- the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. There is life for us to know in Christ. And here's the passage I referred to earlier. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But Jesus is alive. A number of years ago, one of my daughters was sitting in a vacation Bible school class over in the nursery. It wasn't a nursery class, it's just where we put them for that week. And one of our students was helping in that class. The teacher was teaching. She's no longer here, sweet, sweet lady. She was emphasizing the death, the death, the death, the death. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. You need to believe in Jesus. Jesus died for you. And the student was telling me the story of this. She said that my daughter was twitching the whole time while this is going on. And, and, and the student kept looking at her and thinking, what is going on here? And as the, the teacher kept saying, Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died, finally she said my daughter couldn't take it anymore, and she yelled out, He's alive! He's alive! Jesus rose from the grave! He's alive! And the teacher looked at her and said, That's right. He's alive. This should impact us. It should, it should influence every moment of every day that the one who died is alive. 
and as our student said in the podcast this week, and he lives in me. Jesus is alive. Okay, you guys, I actually took things out of my notes as I was teaching. So here we are. You've got two minutes. Let her rip. Anybody? Yes, sir. Yeah, one of the things that helped me is uh, R.C. Sproul had a comment about the sovereignty of God and the the free will of man. And and what he said was, he focuses a lot on works, Mm -hmm. and he said that uh, the problem in understanding free will is that men often confuse it with autonomy. Okay. And Mm -hmm. autonomy comes from auto and nomos, meaning self law. And what he said is that the sovereignty of God is always over. We have free will, but that doesn't mean we make our own laws. We are still subordinate to God. Hmm. And so in our free will, it's still his law, not ours. We don't make the rules. And that helped me in understanding that relationship. Thank you. Anybody else? Porter? Anyone else? I don't remember. I, was, I just have been reading through Acts, and I don't remember exactly where it is, but it's when either Festus or uh, one of these guys is talking about Paul. What he says is he talks about he's been preaching about this guy, some, some guy who died, but who Paul says is alive. So it just reemphasizes that was Paul's teaching. Hmm. Paul taught through, it, it come, uh, kept coming back up. Jesus died, yes, but he's alive. Right. He kept, that was the focus of his preaching. Right. Yeah. And both are necessary. Yeah. I'm trying to find it, but I can't. That's fine. Anybody else? Yes. I like how God's mission of salvation wasn't thwarted by Jonah's obstinacy. Yeah. I like, I like that, too. <laughs> and I like the fact that he didn't give up on Jonah. Yeah. Because he could have ditched him. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Do you want to jump in the ocean? Fine. Done with you. We'll move on. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he could have. Yeah. Okay. Also, just the the consistency of of God's heart in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like you have here, the same as from Hebrews, where for the joy set before him endured the cross. That the, the cross is not the joy or the goal, but it's the redemption. That the relationship that he has created us for is more important to God than we really appreciate it as. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing here, where it's just, it's God sending Jonah. And Jonah's going to be embarrassed, and he's going to look foolish, but God's like, that really doesn't matter, because these people are more important. I will sustain you because you are, but I love these people. Like, his heart doesn't change. You don't have this, like, the stereotype of the, the Old Testament God who's all mean and grudgy. But then finally in the New Testament, you know, he gets some coffee and he's actually pleasant. But it's, it's the same God. He doesn't change. Mm. And his, his heart has not changed in thousands of years and in, in thousands of sins. Mm. His desire to forgive and restore has always been there. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. 
I appreciate your discipline. I know that was difficult for you. I do. I, I'm, I'm serious. I know that was difficult for you. I appreciate it. Israel, would you lead us in prayer, please? Amen. Thank you for listening and for participating. Sorry, y'all had to sit.